If you have your uh, Bibles, you'll want to turn to Acts 2. Acts 2 today will be in verses 41 to 47, Acts 2. Let's, uh, let's talk to the Lord. Father, we rightly just sang about your holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is filled with your glory. Father, we now turn to your inspired, inerrant word. And we ask, Father, that you would take your word and apply it to our lives. That we would know it is good to have opened your word. But we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. So challenge us, encourage us. Move in our hearts, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Several years ago at St. Luke's Congregational Church in Bloomington, Indiana, someone put in the church newsletter purporting from the pastor why this pastor no longer goes to sporting events. Understand it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, it's a parody, but these were the reasons he no longer goes to sporting events. One, every time I go, they charge me money. They're always asking for money. Two, the coach never calls on me. Three, the seats are very hard and uncomfortable. Four, the people at the sporting events aren't very friendly. They don't all even know my name. Five, the coach recently made a bad call that I disagree with. Six, there are hypocrites at sporting events. The coach himself is definitely a hypocrite. Seventh, the game sometimes goes into overtime. Are you kidding me? I got places to go, people to meet. Overtime? Really? Eight. The band sometimes plays songs I don't know and I don't like. Nine. The games are scheduled when I'd rather be doing something else. Ten. My parents took me to too many games growing up. I already know more than the coach. And eleven. One can be a good fan and never watch a game. Obviously, that's a parody on why we might choose not to go to church. Now, some of the excuses are valid, aren't they? A church is filled with hypocrites. The leader makes a lot of bad calls. The leader is a hypocrite. All of that is true. But yet, but yet if you and I are honest with scripture, God calls the church what? His bride. You kind of think that Jesus could do better, don't you think? He calls the church his bride. This church is the bride of Christ. There has never been a perfect church, won't be short of glory. A lot of imperfections, lots of reasons to be discouraged with the bride of Christ. And yet, God calls it the bride of Christ, so if we are always angry at the bride or avoiding the bride, 
or we're always critical with the bride, we have to understand it's Christ's bride that we are attacking. Now today's text is really the first church of Jerusalem. Some would say it's a pretty good bride. I'm not so sure if you read through the whole book that it's all that special a bride. In fact, there has been in the past an entire segment of evangelical churches that called themselves Acts 2 churches until the leader who began that movement himself was less than honorable. I don't think we're calling ourselves an Acts 2 church, but I, I think we can say that there are some principles in this passage that would help us to be a better bride of Christ. And let's be honest, this church started out with a bang. It's gonna peter a little bit as time goes on, but it started out pretty well. Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 came to Christ. Now prior to going to grad school, I preached occasionally, not very often, a few times, never with much success. I remember going to grad school and in whatever year you start homiletics, a fancy word for preaching, I don't remember what year that was, but uh, I remember that first class that we called them homiletic labs. And you're in a class with like 12 students and a teacher and you get a number of times to preach. Now, I remember my first time, you only got 15 minutes and it's videotaped. That is everybody's nightmare. I can tell you that I'm videotaped every week and I can tell you I have never once, except during the time we were at home, have I ever watched myself video. That's a nightmare. Don't do it. <laughs> so we have 12 students. I got 15 minutes. I practiced and I studied and I probably had like 45 or 50 hours into this bad boy. And I looked out at these 12 people and I realized none of them had slept the night, the night before because they were all tired. It was just, it was annoying. They were yawning and fidgeting and oh, it was annoying. And then you have like an hour. You only get to preach for 15 minutes. You got an hour of one-on-one -on -one time with the prof and you watch it together. Oh joy. <laughs> and then he tells you what he thinks about it. I don't think he thought anything positive. Shame on him, 35, 36 years later, I still remember what he said and it has impacted my life for 35 or 36 years. The early church, this church, started out well, but it got bad. Do you know if you read about this early church, they have unity problems? They have heresy. Heresy in their midst. If you read about all the epistles which were sent to churches, Almost all of them have heresy in their midst. You read the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, and five of them are like really in trouble. Only one of them is exceptional, and one is doing okay. There's leadership problems in all of these churches. I love Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is preaching. And Paul is preaching so long and he's so boring that a guy falls out the window and dies. <laughs> Nobody has yet died from one of my sermons yet. It hasn't happened. 
I got something on Paul. And he resuscitates the guy. And this is the real bride of Christ. And let me read nine things from today's text that the bride we need to individually work on and corporately work on. So I want to pick up in Acts 2. I want to read verses 41 to 47. So those who received his word, that is Peter's sermon, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon them every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I think the first point we want to make is that the most significant thing we can do in our life is come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Peter preached and 3,000 came to know Jesus. Now we don't really have all the details of Peter's sermon, but because we have the New Testament, we know what he said. Maybe not these exact words, but this is what Peter said. He might have cited something like Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Or 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have not sinned, we are liars and the truth is not in us. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die for our sins. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He preached and God's spirit moved and women and men and young people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 3,000. As I said, the first time I preached uh, before seminary, that didn't go so well. During seminary, not so well. I'm getting just a little bit better as time goes on. 3,000 came to Christ. Now maybe for some of you, you need to stop right here. Maybe this is all you need to hear today. Maybe the Lord brought you here today for a time like this. And maybe today is the day you say, you know what? I'm that sinner and you are and so am I. And you, I, we are in need of a savior. And maybe today is the day by faith you believe in Christ. And you say, I'm going to accept what you did on the cross, dying for my sin. By faith, I believe in you. Become my Savior and Lord. If you've not done that, that's the most important thing you can do today. That's how the text begins. That's the first thing that is necessary for all of us. The second thing, same verse, is those who believed were baptized. We ought to be startled by that. We're not. We're not because we're used to baptism 2,000 years later. But understand that in the early church, baptism of Jews especially was unthinkable. Now Jews knew about baptism. In the Old Testament, if a Gentile came to realize his or her sin 
and look forward to a Redeemer Christ and place one's faith in the Redeemer Christ, that Gentile was called a proselyte and she or he was baptized. It was almost a picture right out of Romans 6, 3 to 5, where you are dead to sin and you arise a new creature in Christ. Baptism doesn't save, but it's a picture of having been saved. And Gentiles were baptized, but never Jews. But that changes in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, where John the Baptist, the one who comes to prepare the place of the Lord, who comes to proclaim the Messiah, he is down by the Dead Sea at the part of the Jordan that goes into the Dead Sea, and he calls Jews to baptism. That had never occurred before. And Mark 1.5 tells us the entire Judean countryside came down, down by the Dead Sea, to be baptized. Imagine what that's like. That part of Israel is desert. It is desolate. It's also 20 miles from Jerusalem. So to go and be with John the Baptist is a 40-mile jaunt, 20 miles each way. Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So it's not only a 40-mile walk, it's 4,000 vertical feet up and down. Or more specifically, down and then when you're tired, back up. And yet it says all the Judean countryside came to be baptized. If that's only a third of Jerusalem, and I don't know how you come up with a third out of all of the Judean countryside, if it's only a third, 300,000 Jews made their way down to the Dead Sea to be baptized by John and John's disciples. Baptism doesn't save. It never did. It never will. Communion doesn't save. Going to church doesn't save. Being a good person. None of these things save. But baptism is a public declaration that one has by faith believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you're here and you believe in Christ, but you've not been baptized, in August, all four campuses are going to have a baptism. Consider that time as one where you will make a public declaration and you will symbolically die to self and sin and rise as a new creation in Christ because it's a picture of what Christ has done at the moment in which you and I receive Jesus as Savior. So that's the second thing. They believed, they were baptized. The third thing, verse 42, they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. This is loaded. The apostles and the prophets are the 66 books of Holy Scripture. They're devoted to the word of God. And I've got to stand back and ask myself, and maybe you as well, Am I devoted to the Word of God? Are you devoted to the Word of God? Are we really tethered to it? Does it really matter what Scripture says? Are our lives being transformed? I think of Al-Hazar University. I don't know if you know of Al-Hazar University. It's in Cairo, Egypt. It actually is a Sunni Muslim university. It is the second longest degree-giving university in the world. 
It is 45,000 students at any given time. In order to get into Al-Azhar University, you must cite 110 straight verses from the second Surah, which is the cow. The Surah is like a book. My question is this. Do you know 110 consecutive verses of Scripture? Do you? Do I? Just to get into the university, 45,000 students, you have to cite 110 verses from the Surah the Cow. And then you have to learn more throughout your years at the university. But that's nothing. Al-Azhar University is connected to Al-Azhar Mosque. And they oversee a pre-K through sixth grade school. And if you enter in pre-K and stay through sixth grade, at the end of sixth grade, you will have memorized the Quran. 6,226 verses. Three days of citation as a sixth grader. And the Quran leads to death. We have the inspired and errant word of God. And it says they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Perhaps we need to up our game. Certainly I need to up my game. I think of even how we sometimes study scripture. Topical is okay occasionally. It ought not be our diet. You know what happens with topical Bible studies and teaching is we use a megaphone on a certain topic when Jesus might have only whispered. That is a topical study might very well overemphasize Something that Jesus emphasized a little. That's what topical does. But when you go through books of the Bible, you get exactly how often Jesus spoke on a topic in the context of that topic. Now, someone might say, well, Jeff, the Bible was written like 3,500 years ago to 2,000 years ago. If if God were to write it today, he would drop some verses and he would add more verses on certain topics that pertain to the 21st century, not my God. In fact, in the song that you just sang, you all just sang that God is what? All-knowing, omniscient. God wrote scripture for every age. He didn't need to add verses for the 21st century. He doesn't need to take away verses for the 21st century. He gave us the topics in context exactly how we need them. That doesn't mean all topics are wrong. It doesn't mean that. It just means we need a steady diet of the apostles' teaching. And the apostles did not preach topically. They preached in a way and taught in a way and wrote in a way that is organized. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for their spiritual milk that they may grow up into salvation. Now, my youngest grandchild, I have two. Our youngest is a little guy. He still drinks from a bottle. And his favorite people in the world are mom and dad and his big sister, hands down. His favorite people. 
But if he wants a bottle, they can't console him either until they're giving him a bottle. He's insatiable when he wants a bottle. And that's what scripture calls us to be, insatiable. Of course, when we read and learn scripture, we become culpable. Luke 12 says that, doesn't it? To whom much is given, much more is expected. And I even think of James 2.19. It says that the demons shudder. Why? Because they know the word of God and they're not living it and they know their destiny. The more we learn, the more culpable we become. But the more we learn, the more we learn about this great God and the more insatiable towards his word we should become. I think of uh, Dr. R. Kent Hughes. He was a senior pastor at College Church in Wheaton. Uh, very influential person, mostly through writing, but a little bit through uh, interacting with him in my life. And uh, Dr. Kent Hughes had a guest speaker, uh, Richard Wormbrand. You might know him, tortured for Christ. Uh, he was tortured under Sosescu in Romania, long before Romania was a NATO country. And he introduced Richard Wormbrandt to speak to College Church. And in his introduction, he said, we are a Bible teaching church. And Wormbrandt stopped him. He said, ah, but are you a Bible living church? You see, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is not only to know the word, it is to live the word. So that's the third thing from the text. The fourth, verse 42, is they majored in fellowship. This is one of those words that we kind of know, but maybe not as well as we think. I think if you ask many evangelicals, what does the word fellowship mean? Or what is the Greek word? You say, oh, it's koinonia. That's right, that is the word in the text, but I think sometimes we get it wrong. We think of koinonia as a potluck supper or sharing a cup of joe with someone and, and having a little conversation. But koinonia comes from koinonakos, which means generous. And koinonia actually isn't this way. It isn't Ramon and I having breakfast. Koinonia is... Jeff being generous to Ramon, or Ramon being generous to Jeff. It's not Jeff and Ramon. Koinonia always goes one way, always, away from us. So sometimes how it works is this. We go to a Bible study and we don't feel this great fellowship. And on the ride home, we say to our spouse, I ain't ever going back. Those people don't know what koinonia is. Nobody even cares about us. But that's not koinonia. Koinonia is generosity extended, not generosity received. And so because they were born again and baptized, proclaiming their faith, and they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching, they knew what koinonia was. It was the generosity extended out towards others. And maybe as we extend it, it will come back. But that's not the purpose of koinonia. 
It's always going the other way. It's investing ourselves in the lives of others. That's what koinonia means. Fifth, verse 42, they were committed to the breaking of the bread. In the Greek text, it's the breaking of the bread. The article is there, which is different than a little bit later in the text where they're in their homes and they're breaking bread. A little later in the text that in their homes and they're breaking bread, I think that's kind of like an agape feast, a potluck feast, or you're having somebody over and you're extending koinonia generosity to somebody else. But here we have the article, which lends me to believe it's talking about communion. Communion is something Jesus gave us. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then you go to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, and it's all about the breaking of bread. Let a man examine himself lest he eat or drink judgment upon himself. This is my body. This is my blood. And the wafer represents the body that was abused of Christ and the juice represents the shed blood. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is something we do to remember what Christ has done. And it's a corporate act and an individual one as we examine ourselves before the Lord. I'm excited about the next communion because my schedule has been such that on a Sunday morning, I actually have not had communion in almost two years because I've been preaching 7.45 and 8, and I've been preaching at 10.20 and 10.30, and I'm always in the service before or after communion. It shouldn't be that way, but just that's how the schedule worked. And so this is a, this is a time, a rich time, and, and it ought to be a rich time for us each and every time as we confess our sins, examine ourselves before the Lord and thank him for what he's done. It's one of the few things that the body of Christ does that's only for a believer who's in a right relationship with the Lord, confessed up. Sixth, the early church devoted itself to prayer, verse 42. You can't be but impressed as you read through the book of Acts this is a messed up church, a messed up bunch of churches, but they pray a lot. They do. They believe John 15, 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. They're always praying because prayer matters and prayer changes things. And God works through the prayers of his people. When we come together and we gather, maybe, uh, maybe Sam is up here preaching. And I sit back and I think, okay, boy, you got five minutes of my attention. You better hold it. I, better, I hope he brings the goods because otherwise, man, I didn't get to bed until whew, a couple hours ago. That's not how it ought to be. First, Sam has studied hard put in a lot of hours and, and then he's prayed because Sam knows that both parts are necessary. He's got to study, but he's also got to pray because unless God shows up, 
nothing of eternal significance is going to happen. And when we're sitting together down here, rather than saying, you got five minutes to keep my attention, boy. I hope you brought the goods. We ought to be saying, Lord, I'm about to hear your inspired and errant word. This is a word for my heart. Open my heart that I may hear, that I may be changed. If we're not preparing ourselves, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves spiritually. This was a praying church. Seventh, this was a church filled with the awe of God. The word awe could be translated fear. It's the same word. And awe, verse 43, came upon every soul. I don't know if you like uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. I do. I love it. I was just thinking to myself a couple days ago, I can't wait till Ray Ray is old enough, my four-year-old granddaughter, because I want to read her The Chronicles of Narnia. I especially like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's my favorite. And in there, there's an incredible scene. There's Lucy. She's a daughter of Eve. We're all daughters and sons of Adam and Eve. So she's a daughter of Eve, and she's being entertained by the most incredible individuals, not people, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And she's learned about Aslan. And Aslan is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why he is a lion, because Jesus is a lion in the Bible. And so Aslan, Lucy, this daughter of Eve, this young girl, is about to meet the lion. And she's thinking to herself, that might not be very good. I don't know if he's eaten today or not. So she says, is Aslan safe? Now stop for a moment. You're talking to your child, a future child, a grandchild. And your child says, is Jesus safe? What are you going to say? Well, C.S. Lewis is a lot better than most of our answers. C.S. Lewis is theologically precise. He says, is Aslan safe? By no means. But he's good. That's Jesus. Is he safe? He is not. He is not safe. What does the author of Hebrews say? It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Is he safe like he's a genie that I can rub three times and he gives me three wishes and grants them and he ignores how I live my life? He is not safe. The author of Hebrews says he disciplines those whom he calls children. He's not safe. Isaiah, Isaiah in the 8th century B.C., gets a glimpse of God and he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of God. Is he safe? He is not, but he's good. He's perfect in goodness. He's a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace. And he's a God of justice and righteous wrath and he's holy, holy, holy. And so this early church who's devoted to the apostles' teaching 
are filled with this awe for this God. I wonder what the word awe means. If we were to ask one another what awe means, I think we'd get some different definitions. Some might say, well, maybe it's like old cathedrals and Gregorian chants. I just came from traditions, they'd say hymns. Maybe it's someone dressed in a suit and a tie. I told someone last week, uh, was last week Easter, yeah, they saw me in a, a jacket and a tie and said, wow, you look good. And I said, yeah, Easter, Christmas, your funeral. That's it. <laughs> That's what you're getting, that jacket and tie. I don't know what we think of when we think of, of awe. But in verses 46 and 47, it says that the church was glad and it's this, this exuberant word. It means almost frivolity, laughter, joy. Is that part of awe? Apparently it's right in the text. It just follows. They were filled with awe and then it says they're kind of laughing really silly. That's what the text says. I think awe is understanding that God is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace. And he's otherly. He's a holy God, a God of justice and a God of righteous wrath. And we stand and kneel before him in respect. He's like the mother hen with his pinions, his feathers over us. He's closer than a brother. And yet we say, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. I have seen the Holy One. That's what it means to have awe. It's a reverence for who God is and a joy for who he is and a respect for his word and a desire to live that word out. Eighth, the church learned to be generous to one another. Let me read verses 44 and 5 again. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I don't know if you read anything on Acts 2, this particular 44 and 45, but people kind of all of a sudden think that there's ideology in the Bible. Like this is communism and this is socialism. No. Communism is the forced distribution of goods. Socialism allows some freedom of possessions and then it's the forced distribution of the rest of goods. Do you read the word forced anywhere in the text? Is, is, is it implied? No, this is a church that loves God so much and understands that we're stewards that they hold what God has entrusted to them loosely and they distribute it. This is an ideology. But since we're there, I'm going to go there. I think it's safe to say that communism hasn't actually been all that friendly to Christianity. Whether it's the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic or its offspring Putin today or China or North Korea has not really been a friend of Christianity and we might even say, has socialism been a friend of Christianity? And has it been helpful to those who have little? Well, not in Venezuela. 
or if you go to Italy or Spain or Greece, do you know that about 40% of adults under the age of 40 are unemployed in those socialist countries because there's no jobs for them? 40%, if you're under the age of 40, you got a six in 10 chance of being employed in those socialistic countries. So it hasn't been all that friendly either. But this isn't ideological. It has nothing to do with ideology. It just says that the church held what God entrusted to them loosely. And I look out and you guys have held what God has entrusted to you loosely. In the last 12 months, uh, a little more than a third of what has come in has been either given or sent out or pledged to mission organizations. A little more than 1.1 million. In the last three or four weeks, not counting that amount, in the last few weeks we ask, hey, can we send some money to Ukrainian refugees who are going to find their way and have found their way into some Christian organizations that we're aware of that are going to house them. And you've given about $60,000 in the last three or four weeks and we still have two weeks to go. And I think of a benevolent fund that more money probably leaves the church in the benevolent fund than stays in it or it's close at this point and it's always robust. I think of Christmas where we have Operation Christmas Child where hundreds, probably thousands, I've never asked, of boxes are, are packed with a gospel presentation in each one that go somewhere in the world. I think of a number of people, not only in the church, but actually more outside the church in some of our elementary schools and our public schools that they don't have Christmas presents and, and we collect them and attach a little bit of something about the Lord and, and they get a Christmas present. And you guys have done that. You've imitated what's in the text that you have held loosely what God has entrusted to you. And that's what God calls his church to do. Finally, evangelism. Verse 47 says, and the Lord added to their number daily. The word evangelism isn't in the text, but how does the Lord add to the number daily? As you, I tell others about Jesus. Who do you know? Who do I know? What person we work with or we live near or we recreate with that needs to know about Jesus? And will you be that messenger? Or will you invite someone to come to church where they'll hear the gospel? We looked at nine Nine aspects that ought to be in our lives and in the church's life. There is no perfect church. There are no perfect saints. All of us need to take the next step. And I wonder for you what that next step would be. I wonder for me, we might look at the nine and say, well, man, the Lord has really done some amazing things. And five of them, far from perfect, but five of them, I can see some growth, but there's four I, I might ask the Lord to help me pick one out of the four. I'm going to focus on that and take the next step in my relationship with the Lord. Are these the only nine? Of course not. We might say, well, why didn't he mention like music worship? The Psalter's all over that. Or church discipline. 
Galatians 6.1 and Matthew 18? Or why doesn't he mention government and governance in the church? Acts 6 will be all over that. There are other things, but right now he gave us these nine to help us to take the next step as a church and as individuals within the bride of Christ to please this great God. Well, let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts that we can learn and be challenged by and encouraged in. Lots to help us to take the next step as individuals, as a church. And we pray that we would do that and that you would allow us to see more and more from your word of how we ought to live in accordance with you. And Father, we're thankful that your son is closer than a brother, truly a redeemer. And we want to find that balance between fear and reverential awe and yet the familiarity and the wonderfulness of a relationship. Father, we never want to give up the transcendence, but we also want to grow as your disciples in love with you in a deep and abiding relationship. We ask that you would do this in us for our betterment and your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.